Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. We will be discussing Gregory of Nyssa's fourth homily on Ecclesiastes. Uh, the text that he read was uh, the first several verses from chapter 2, and this uh, homily, this sermon, is of particular interest because it appears to be the first time uh, that any Christian um, spoke so vehemently against slavery. Um, so it's uh, it's a fourth century homily, probably in the three seventies, um, and so it's it, we've done a little bit of Gregory of Nyssa in the past. So if you want to go back um, and look at our catalog, uh, we have a c- couple of episodes on Gregory of Nyssa where we'll give a little bit more of his history. Um, but we didn't do this or this specific homily and seem particularly timely um, because we're thinking a lot in the United States right now about of our, our history with slavery and Christianity's sort of um, endorsement at one point um, of slavery, uh, especially in the South. But just generally speaking, um, that was not something that was outlawed in the United States. But we wanted to look back at Christian history and see where uh, Christians, when they'd begun reflecting on and thinking about um, slavery and how they some uh, have condemned it from very, very early on. Um, and so we, we chose to do this uh, homily from Gregory of Nyssa. We also mentioned this uh, briefly in the letter from, uh, or in the work from Ambrose on um, on the uh, on the duties of the clergy, and he mentions some stuff about uh, releasing slaves from captivity. Um, so there were other people who spoke about it, but but none with kind of the um, force and. Um, just sort of beauty of words as Gregory of Nyssa. So uh, we offer this up uh, for your consideration. Hope that you enjoy it. And so if you do, please uh, reach out to us on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, and uh, rate and review us on iTunes. We also have a Patreon account if you'd like to support our work. Um, So we're right at that time of year where a lot of our bills are coming due. Um, So we'd appreciate any support that you'd be willing to give. so I hope that you enjoy this episode. If you have any questions, if you have any suggestions, uh, again, please feel free to reach out. We do appreciate hearing from our listeners. We have some other uh, episodes coming up with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Wicks, uh, Dr. Philip Carey, Dr. Gavin Ortland. So we got a nice lineup of other guests that will be on as well. And we'll continue uh, with Tom and Trevor as well, reading some of the early Christian theologians as we have always done. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch up with you here in a week or two. We read today Gregory of Nyssa's fourth homily on Ecclesiastes, um, and it's it was of particular interest to us because um, in this homily, uh, Gregory of Nyssa gives, as far as we can tell, the first forthright full condemnation of slavery from a Christian. Um, so it's a very, um, it, in some ways it's, uh, historically odd. Like you can read, um, some commentary on it and people are trying to figure out where Gregory of Nyssa drew this from because Basil of Caesarea, his brother doesn't really say anything about it directly. Um, you know, and the other Cappadocian Gregory Nazianzen doesn't really say too much. Um, it just sort of seems like, um, that Gregory of Nyssa woke up one day, read this passage in Ecclesiastes and was outraged. Um, it fits within some of the other things that he says. Um, I, I sent to Tom and to Trevor, a, uh, brief, 
um, article uh, that uh, from from a guy called David Bentley Hart, who has some good background if you want to read more on this homily and the outlook of Gregory Nyssa. But what's uh, one other interesting thing that I would just say historically about even this translation that we read, it's really hard to find a translation of this homily. And in the major collection of his works in English that were done in the 19th century um, in, in Oxford in England, um, they don't translate this. So when they selected the works of Gregory of Nyssa, this was not included. Um, so, you know, for most of the people who read the Church Fathers at all, they read from this English translation, which we have used, um, and it's just, it's not in there. Um, and uh, the other site would be New Advent, which does some translations, it's not on there. Uh, it's really difficult to even find an English version. Um, so, I mean, uh, you know, so I had to go um, get this uh, from, from our library but um be that as it may this is the his fourth homily on ecclesiastes on ecclesiastes 2 and he has a very compelling in my mind uh argument against slavery um so that's what that's what we're going to talk about and of course it fits our cultural uh moment in the sense where a lot of us are asking questions about uh, race relations and racism and the history of slavery in our own country all of us are born in america um and you know christians were a part of that right christians were defending that in certain cases so um even though there have been um uh, arguments against slavery within the christian tradition uh at least in some parts of the united states i mean the three-fifths compromise and others um in the united states this was considered acceptable um, and so, you know, so we just wanted to go back and look at the first time that Christians give a, a full, like absolute unequivocal um, condemnation of slavery. I think it can be found in parts of Philemon um, when read correctly. Um, N.T. Wright has some good stuff on that. I think that Paul um, leads in some of those directions, Galatians as well, but we can get into some of that. Uh, that's my, that's my introduction. Um, I, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, if you guys would like to respond, jump in. Yeah, I would like to just add one thing, something I've been thinking about that I was partly provoked to by some of what the commentator wrote uh, uh -huh. homily, because there was a, a little addendum to the reading where there was a comment, you know, kind of a bit of commentary, which I normally don't read those. Uh, if you send them, just I uh, normally because I'm pressed for time, this was a pretty short reading and I only read his bit on slavery. Um, and I don't know that he was making this point, but I was reminded of something that Bertrand Russell wrote in his essay, Why I'm Not a Christian, uh, which um, I think it seems to me actually offers some pretty poor arguments in general with one. Um, the main argument I thought was especially poor because it was really rooted, I think, in a, a poor hermeneutic, a, a poor uh, understanding of how to read scripture, but without going too far into that, in his intro, he he makes the assertion that Christianity has been on the wrong side, basically, of every historical <laughs> issue, which for me is just, I mean, that's just absurd. Um, the reality is, is for the most part, Christianity, like pretty much every other uh like corporate entity that has ever existed uh, has its adherence on both sides of pretty much every issue. Right. So he holds up slavery as an example. And the reality is of course, Christianity, the church has been a tool used to prop up slavery for sure. And it was a massive tool used in our own history to prop up slavery where, um, 
you know, slave owners would definitely use certain scriptures, especially in Paul's writings, uh, you know, calls for slaves to submit to their masters and and in Philemon for, you know, for Philemon to accept back Onesimus, the runaway slave. You know, many of these guys would actually hire black, well, not hire, they would let out black preachers, um, that is, they were slaves, of course, who were let out by their masters and sent from slave plantation to slave plantation to preach on submission of slaves, you know, things like that. So yeah, Christianity has definitely propped up slavery, but to ignore that the abolitionist movement was fueled and, and I, I don't feel like I'm overstepping my bounds when I say primarily instigated by Christians uh, like Lyman Beecher and his daughter, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you, if you go through the history of the abolitionist movement in America, it is all rooted in Christianity. So yeah, Christians are on the wrong side, but they're also on the right side. And when I look at kind of, you know, I've been really mulling over and meditating on Roman history, which was in many ways very different from, uh, uh, or Roman slavery was very different from American, the American version, but it isn't as different, I think, as some people try to assert. And when you take a look at how slavery evolved uh, in the latter Roman Empire and then in the early Middle Ages, I think you have a very strong uh, sense in the church that slavery is really bad. And a lot of leaders in the church eventually kind of rising up to, to put it out. And for the most part, I mean, slavery kind of, at least in the traditional sense of a person owning another human being as property, kind of died out in Christian Europe. And I think largely because of the work of Christian leaders. Now, of course, it would rise back up uh, at, you know, kind of the dawn of the Enlightenment. Um, and again, with the justification and backing of many Christian leaders as well. But all this to say, it's a complex historical issue. And so when somebody comes out and just says, look, Christians have propped up these evil things, that's just not entirely true, or at least not the whole story. And I think that would be true of pretty much every religion out there and pretty much every social, um, political, you know, force that has been at work in, in our society. Anyway, sorry, end of rant. To add slightly to the rant, I had similar thoughts where when reading this, I realized how egalitarian of a metaphysics of humans Christianity has via its teachings that was sort of unprecedented where, you know, of course, like Aristotle justifies slavery by thinking some people just literally have the nature to be slaves, for example. There was there was all sorts of other writers who you you basically in our sort of contemporary terminology you just dehumanize the people you want to control right whereas Christianity had just such a radically egalitarian view of human beings due to the fact that it were all descended from Adam and Eve who were the you know the first humans and they are made in the image of God um, without getting into the issue of the relationship between men and women, which I guess in some ways in some churches may not be egalitarian, but that's a whole different issue, blah, blah, blah. But other than that, I, the, the view of human nature as being of equal, that makes each human be of equal moral worth, I saw highlighted here and I found 
uh, very interesting in part because I'm just reading contemporary political philosophy, which is of course, um, you know, very, a very popular view in contemporary political philosophy is liberal egalitarianism, where that's sort of the thing everyone's trying to give arguments for, and they're trying to give metaphysical bases for why all humans are each other's moral equals. And yet here in this sort of very, very early text, sort of Christianity already had a metaphysics just automatically built for such an egalitarianism. And I found that very interesting. Yeah, well, I think we should. Um, so we should get down uh, as uh, before we start like situating it uh, historically, which I think is good. Um, let's. I think we should get out on the table some of the the arguments that Gregory of Nyssa actually proffers for uh, rejection of slavery. So in the passage from Ecclesiastes, Solomon seems to be listing out a bunch of things that he's ultimately going to call futile and vain. Um, and one of the in one of the lines, Solomon says, "I got slaves and slave girls." and slaves who were born for me. Um, and much property and cattle and sheep became mine, above all who had been before me in Jerusalem. So that's Ecclesiastes 2.7. Um, and so Gregory launches into this and he says, um, so when someone turns the property of God into his own property and arrogates dominion to his own kind, that is makes dominion part of his own pro uh, uh, like ability. Um, so as to think himself owner, the owner of men and women, what is he doing but overstepping his own nature through pride regarding himself as something different from his subordinates? Um, and he goes on, you condemn man to slavery when his nature is free and possesses free will and you legislate in competition with God overturning his law for the human species the one made on the specific terms that he should be the owner of the earth and appointed to the government appointed the government by the creator him you bring under the yoke of slavery as though fighting uh defying and fighting against the divine decree so uh, Nissa here lays out and says, basically, God created men free, men and women free, created the human species free. Um, and he says that if you, you, you know, this is uh, going against God's very law of, of nature, um, that you should make, uh, make a, um, a discrimination between two different types of people. So Trevor uh, brought up uh, uh, Aristotle's argument, which I think is, is pertinent. Um, here because that would have been part of the thought world of Nyssa as well. Um, but but specifically, you you know you are um, overstepping your authority. You are you know I mean you are sinning, um, and and this is uh, deserving of judgment. Um, and it's just it's it, you know he links it to pride, which I think is important to remember. Um, that is you know part of this is your arrogance that you think that you should uh, that you could be even be able to do this. Um, that is part of it but it, it is clearly i mean based on the reasons that he gives that's why it, it can only be pride if if he understands uh, that all humans are created free um and and that's the only way that the argument works um and so you know as i said in the introduction it is pretty unique uh, that this comes out in Nyssa here because we don't see this. I mean, I love Augustine, but Augustine doesn't give Augustine gives an argument for buying uh, or, or for protecting people from being um, abducted. And he gives some, and he gives encouragement uh, to, if you become a, uh, a pastor that you have to manumit your slaves. Um, so he, you know, they have certain rules that are, that are in place for the clergy, but he never outright condemns the whole institution in quite the same way. Um, and that's a failing, um, you know, that is a failing 
failing in my mind of Augustine. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think we should be clear about the cases where, you know, there are, as Tom was saying, there are parts of the Christian tradition uh, that that don't um, uh, see what Nyssa sees um, in Genesis 1 and don't apply it across the board in the way that they should. Like I said, Augustine, you know, he kind of waffles a little bit. He says, well, you know, pastors should, um, but but doesn't say that the whole institution has to go. I, I have a couple of thoughts. One is, I think, just kind of brief observational, The sec- which is based on the text. The other one is kind of responding to something you ended with there, Chad. Uh, yeah. So the first, just kind of the, you know, kind of uh, um, uh, Nissa's comments on why it's arrogance or pride to own a slave Part of it is that fact that we're born free, right? That God has instilled in us uh, a free will and that it uh, mars that picture for us to take, try to take that away from somebody. But there's one more thing that you, uh, that you referenced, but I just really want to emphasize it for a second because I found it so fascinating. And that is that kind of unlike Aristotle, where Aristotle makes the assertion that there are two classes of humans, those born uh, who are naturally free those who are born naturally slaves, although Nissa does say we're all born with freedom and free will, in a sense also says we're all born slaves because we're all slaves of God. And yeah. part of why it's wrong for us to own another human is because we all are co-equal basically under the sovereignty of our master. And since he has declared that we ought not uh, basically own each other, then we ought not own each other that he alone is master. Therefore we can't ever pop up ourselves, man, I'm overusing that line. Uh, that we can't ever put ourselves up as master over anyone else in that sense. Uh, so that was kind of my first observation. The second thing is more kind of to the point you were making there at the end, which is the, you know, Augustine's failure to denounce slavery as a system. And I just wanted to make a couple of comments because you know, one critique I've often heard of the scripture, of, of the New Testament itself, is that it fails to condemn slavery. Now, I, I don't think that the Bible actually fails in its entirety. I think there are some passages uh, in the Old Testament that seem to imply uh, the evils of slavery, but at the same time, passages that seem to affirm slavery. So it makes it a little tricky. But in particular, I kind of want to hone in on, you know, what I referenced earlier um, Paul's teachings, uh, for instance, in Ephesians about slaves submitting to their masters or in the book of Philemon, where he's encouraging a runaway slave Onesimus. Uh, he's not encouraging Onesimus to go back to his master. He's encouraging the Christian Philemon, who's the slave owner of Onesimus, to receive him back without punishing him. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people take that as problematic, and I totally get that. It is. I mean, it, it is hard to wrap our heads around. And certainly slave masters have used those kinds of passages to uphold slavery. Um, But one of the things that has always struck me about it is that, you know, Paul, if you look at all of his teaching, he seems resigned to the structures of the world, not because he thinks they're good or upright, but because what he thinks is, is that our our kind of ethos or maybe our uh, our sense of purpose, ethos may be the wrong word, telos maybe, our, our sense of purpose needs to be rooted in the heavenly vision 
And thus, whatever our circumstance is in this world, and this is going to sound really terrible to some people, but Paul's kind of like, it just isn't that big of a deal. Like Paul asserts it about himself. He goes, I can say whether I am free or in chains, right? Whether free or in chains, that I can rejoice, that I can that I can rejoice in the Lord at any given time, and I can walk walk in the calling that has been placed on my life. And I think he lived that out. He didn't, you know, he 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 allowed himself to go to prison unjustly because he believed that that was the call on his life. And so he makes the comment. He says, um, whether free or uh, he says he says he says, uh, and I think this is in First Corinthians, but he goes. Are you in? Are you uh, free? He says, "Do not seek to be enslaved." But he says, "But if you're slave, if you're a slave, he goes, don't worry about it. Basically, um, because we can still walk this calling of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven does not regard our social situation. So it's like he's like, yes, by all means, let's try to get free and let's try to have the best situation in this world that we can. But what he is saying is, but we may not be able to reach that. Like in our lives." Sometimes we're going to be in straits that we just can't get out of. And in that, we can still experience a full life, living out the call that God has placed on our lives and fulfilling our end purpose, our telos, as he has designed it. And so it's not that I think he was pro-slavery or for like in any way. I think he would have done away with the whole system. He just believed that that the system itself was a product of a world that was fallen. And his job in his mind, I think was to undo the world system as a whole, not in part and to call people to the kingdom of heaven. And so consequently, I think a lot of early Christians who, if you look at their status, I mean, if you look at the first two centuries of the church, right, which we've talked about extensively, these are people who have no say in the political system and are at various intervals persecuted, um, and in certain points, persecuted severely and extensively. And what you don't find is in their writings in the midst of that complain or a complaint or like a desire to overthrow the system. It is always a focus on living for the kingdom, which cannot be overturned. That is the kingdom of God and and bringing the gospel to bear in any circumstance. So, I mean, I don't know if that's what Augustine's doing. I think with Augustine, things are a little different because by this point, the church actually has the political power and thus can end these strictures. It has now the power to end slavery. But I do think you always have that confusion when you're reading some of these writers because they're wrestling with, um, is this like, like, do I want to get caught up in the worldly system of it or do I want to focus on the eternal? And so anyway, that's just, you know, it's, I know that's a lot, um, but I was thinking about it because that commentator actually tried to say that Nyssa wasn't opposed to the system. And I, I really didn't buy into his argument there. He, it almost sounded to me like he was trying to say that Nyssa was fine with slavery in general. He just was against it in particular which didn't make any sense to me. It seems to me that Nissa here is condemning it outright and in a total fashion. Okay, well, because what I was going to say is, yeah, I didn't, just because I could respond to what you just said, Tom, I didn't buy that either. And it was in part because one of his arguments is explicitly referring to the human species, basically, as having moral equality. So he says, you have forgotten the limits of your authority, and that your rule is confined to control over things without reason. 
where it says, let them rule over winged creatures, fishes, four-footed things, creeping things, blah, blah, blah. And he says, you, you go beyond what is subject to you and raise yourself up against the very species which is free, counting your own kind on level with a four-footed things and even footless. So he, he basically gives this sort of argument with this implied premise that's not stated that essentially there is a, an end to your dominion. It's over the non-rational creatures. Thus, by, by buying a human being or presuming yourself to buy a human being, you have essentially dehumanized that person. You have now put them amongst the livestock. And I, my sort of evidence for this translation of this is these funny questions he, he asks. He says, surely cows have not conceived human stock. Surely human beings have not been produced from your cattle. Um, and so he's just trying to point out, he's like, look, there is just a fundamental distinct um, distinction between the natures of the creatures God's created. And we have a nature, we have essential properties that make us rational and thus just literally exclude us from, uh, from slavery. And it's in part because it's, it's in general, you know, slavery is just a topic here, but it kind of, you kind of get this thing from the, the whole homily because he also talks about usury and wealth and other things that it's sort of just the the fact that we're we're all rational creatures and made in the image of god makes us just morally equal to each other it's equally wrong to harm us because we are each other's moral equals yeah well what the point that i was going to make to respond to tom uh too was just to say i did use the phrase system and partly i want to be clear that I don't, um, I prefer the way things are now, <laughs> or at least in the sense that we don't have slavery, we condemn it outright. Uh, we're working towards civil rights. I prefer that the way, the, to be the way things are. Um, so I, I want to say yes, it was not where we, the 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 um, the society that we the things that, that are good about the society that we have now. I want to um, praise those and say I'm happy for those. And those were not; those did not hold then. Um, and so we should be clear where those are different, and where you know, in some in some respects, we can't say uh, that Augustine, you know, brought us explicitly the world that we live in. However, I I mean, as a historian, uh, which is you know part of what I do, I agree 100% with how Tom presented it. Um, that that and that's exactly right. And in, in the sense that especially Paul. Paul has no idea that his voice is going to make a difference to the emperor who basically has absolute control over the empire. Um, so if, you know, it, it would have been a meaningless, almost a, a little meaningless and almost impossible thing for Paul to think to himself, you know what? I can condemn uh, all Roman law and I can say that Roman law allows slavery and people should not have slaves and therefore it might change. That's inconceivable um, to Paul. Um, and and so, but what he does do within the framework that he has is say, hey, look, uh, Onesimus, um, you know, or Philemon, uh, you know, and Onesimus in your situation, you can, you can basically undo slavery in this small moment. Um, and he doesn't have an outlook for, um, you know, how the entire system of Rome could change because that doesn't. That would there were just no there was no you know there was no way um, that a Christian or, or Jewish man a man born Jewish in Asia Minor 
um, thought that in some way he could establish Roman law. I mean, that's just a preposterous thing for him to think. Um, And so, you know, so I I don't, I think we, you know, I think a careful historical outlook would say he is doing what he can. And there's a good reason that we still quote um, Galatians 3, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, Greek nor Jew. There's a reason that these sorts of passages in the scriptures, and even um, Gregory Nyssa here draws on Genesis 1, uh, making God in in, in uh, his image, his rhetorical question. He says, how many obols, that is, how much money did you count the equivalent of the likeness of God. Um, you know, what does it cost to buy God's image? Um, and he's, and so, you know, so drawing on these passages, we have these within our tradition and we have people like Nissa who draw on them and say, yeah, I know that there's these bad institutions and there's these other things, uh, or, uh, I know that we're working, we're working in the environment that we can, but let's draw on what we have to, to make things, to make things change in the sphere of influence that we have. Um, and so I think, you know, I think that that's always, uh, uh worth, um, reminding ourselves and being aware of, and, you know, a little plug for uh, a book that's um, pretty interesting, uh, it's called Dominion. Um, and Tom, and now I can't think of his, Tom is the guy's first name. Um, and I, for some reason I can't come up with his last name. Um, uh, but, but he's on a podcast called unbelievable a little while ago. Uh, but anyway, he makes this whole point about, you know, how certain aspects of Christianity laid the groundwork for, uh, you know, human rights and sort of the general culture of the West. And even though the, you know, most, most of West, the Western liberalism has left Christianity behind, it's the Christianity that was the seedbed for a lot of the things that we, uh, that we cherish now, education, hospitals, um, and all, you know, and even the idea that, that there could be freedom and equality, Genesis one and Galatians three, you know, all of these things are part of the frat fabric of Christianity. And even, even when people, you know, secularists um, say that they're, you know, that that they want to believe these things and that they want to argue for these things, they're drawing on principles that came from Christianity that were not part of Greco-Roman uh, culture. Yeah, in fact, I mean, prior to the rise of Christianity, the notion of human dignity was not existent. I mean, that is something that seems to. And I mean, maybe there's somebody who could push back on this out there, but I've never heard a real viable alternative. But in Western society, prior to the rise of Christianity, there was no sense of human dignity. And the establishment of this idea of human dignity, human value, worth, and uh, a beginning movement towards some sense of egalitarianism begins with the advent and the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Um, that, I mean, it seems to me, and I think there are a lot of people out there arguing that case. Uh, I just picked up a book that, uh, argues, makes the exact same argument from a, uh, secular sociologist, a non-religious sociologist. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, I'll grab it here in a second cause it's, it's nearby and I'll mention it. Um, one more thing I'd throw into Chad, I do get the sense reading like first Corinthians seven, uh, around there, I believe, <clears throat> um, that Paul is also not super concerned to undermine the existing power structures of the Roman Empire because, and I think a lot of Christians felt this way, he had this sense of the immediate impending end of the world, uh, which I do believe all Christians have had since then. I don't I don't think there's ever really been a generation of Christians that felt like the world was going to carry on much longer. That's certainly true today. 
I think it was true in Paul's lifetime. And so that does kind of add to this sense that our primary concern is a heavenly one. And now, by the way, I don't want to in any way convey the idea that we as Christians shouldn't be concerned with justice and trying to establish a just and free society and taking care of the world and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't think that at all. I just want to say, I, I just am trying to uphold this point that I do think Christians have always nonetheless prioritized this sense of a heavenly call over an earthly call in a world that we do believe will ultimately be brought to an end. Um, and I do think Christians have always had the sense that that was going to be sooner rather than later. Yeah. Hmm. Uh. Yeah, I had one question about uh, the the commentary on this. Um, there, he he also makes it sound like I I don't know how how else to say this. It's like he almost kind of goes, uh, "Nissa isn't really that brave for kind of saying any of this because he wouldn't have been talking to slave owners anyway." Or, but, you know, essentially. He could say this as much as he wants because, like, his audience wouldn't have been a hostile one. It was essentially kind of what the what he tried to imply. I don't know if am I being fair in saying that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what he says. It's not fair to Nissa, though. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, that's what I was gonna ask. Like, is that really true historically? <laughs> oh yeah, no. Um, so Nissa had just been um, in exile um, for his defense of Nicene Christianity. Um, and he, so, you know, so he has faced persecution, um, for believing in the Trinity. Um, and he got, got this position to speak, wrote this homily. Um, and he was at risk of going back into, um, going back, back into exile and all, so all of his family, uh, there, we think that his family had as many as nine, possibly 10 siblings, um, and his, uh, so that, that included, um, St. Macrina, the younger, uh, one of the great female saints of the period that included Basil of Caesarea. We think Macrina was probably Gregory's teacher. Um, but regardless, they had, they were aristocratic family with great wealth. Basil was trained by Labanius, basically the greatest teacher of the ancient world at the, in the fourth century. Um, and Gregory possibly went to Athens to study, but, but the family gave up all their wealth after ba Basil, the older had gone to get his education and they just sold everything they had because of their Christian convictions. Um, and so all of the, uh, all of his larger family, um, were raised while they had at one time a uh, wealth and they still had status in the sense that they were still aristocrats with an education. They gave all that up. I mean, so I, I mean, you know, I think we should look at this family as um, as just an absolute like model um, of what it means to devote yourself to the church and to give up uh, what you have for the poor. I mean, so, you know, I mean, to say that he didn't sacrifice anything is is a little bit in, you know, it's it's very disingenuous. So this is written. We think this is written. Uh, I think it's 376, if I'm remembering the date right. Uh, but the latter half of the 370s. Um, so, you know, 30 years, 30, 304, uh, 340 years ish after Christ dies, um, 50, 60 years after Christianity becomes legal, slightly before Christianity becomes the only legal religion in the empire. Um, 
When you say they gave it all up, were they like, were they literally just giving it to the poor as they encountered them? Do you know like what that looked like? I mean, it's just a. I think they gave it to the church um, and the church administered it uh, to, yeah, to the poor and to set up, um, they set up sort of early kind of monasteries and they would sort of live in kind of community. Um, Yeah. I mean, there was the various ways in which they, they sold all that they had, but yeah, primarily through the church. And that was going to be my other point about Augustine, even making it a requirement that people who served in clergy not have slaves. That was sort of Christian's, taking their the one thing that they could control and controlling it i guess they could have said more to the people who are in their congregations but at least in the place where they have total authority they did begin to to get rid of slaves yeah hey by the way um uh found out the the name of that book that i mentioned it's called the rise of christianity by sociologist rodney stark and he, oh yeah he is not uh, a christian but he makes some kind of an assertion kind of like what you were referring to i've not uh, read the whole book yet, um, but I just picked it up recently. And then the the author you were looking for, Chad, is Tom Holland. Uh, Tom not, Holland. Not the guy who plays Spider-Man. Um, a different <laughs> Tom Holland, but <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Both or, good. Oh, yeah. I, I don't love everything Rodney Stark has to say, but that's a podcast for another time. <laughs> Were there any other arguments? Those are the main arguments I saw. Um, uh, that's pretty. I much mean, it. a lot of it's rhetorical. Um, you know, right. like I like the stuff that I quoted. Um, what is man worth? That kind of thing. Um, there is this weird bit about the property is to be bound, or yeah, the property of the person sold is to be bound to be sold with that person too. Um, yeah, there was some, I think there is some historical dispute about what he's talking about there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's what the commentator says. The commentator said he was wrong. I mean, I don't know if that's right, but he, uh, the, because, um, uh, what does he assert or what does he seem to assert? He seems to assert that the property, uh, for the slave, it does not become the property of the slave owner. Is that what he seems to be asserting? I thought it was that the property did come to the uh, slave owner, but but that was not what was actually okay. in the law. That's what that's what he challenges. Um, I don't know. It would seem odd to me. I mean, I I am not an expert in Roman law, but it would seem odd to me that a slave could own property that wasn't the property of the master. That would seem weird. Um, and I think we should, you know, so okay, so we've talked a little bit about the ancient world. One other substantive difference is there's doesn't seem I, I am not aware of any wholesale like Roman law that says because you have a certain skin color, um, you are a slave. Um, the the slavery that they imagine is of 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 sort of um in other cases, like, uh, so, you know, I mean, if you, uh, debt slavery, um, l- losing a war, um, and even when Aristotle talks about natural slaves, he doesn't necessarily link it to if you were born, say, for example, in Ethiopia, you are an inherent slave. But yeah. if you're born, you know, it's it, so it's, um, I mean, there were Greek slaves, there were helots and others. Um, so it doesn't have to be your skin color, color or even your ethnicity that makes you a slave. Yeah. Like, well, it, like it would have been in American uh, forms of slavery when 
you know, slavers went to the to the West Coast of Africa and stole and abducted and forced people into slavery. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting point. I, I think one of the things is, of course, I don't think that the spectrum of skin color was quite as extensive as we might think of today. I mean, when you think of the Roman Empire at the time, you had the, the I mean, the the really fair-skinned, blonde hair, blue-eyed types. I mean, those would you would have some interaction with them on the northernmost fringes of the empire. And of course, if you're fighting Germans when they're invading, or if you have Germans who had, or I guess at this point, you would have had a lot of Germans who by this point had come into the empire. So maybe you would have a little more exposure to some of those really fair skin uh, peoples. But then it's not like you have a lot of exposure to sub-Saharan African. I mean, most of North Africa are people who are pretty dark skinned, of course, but not significantly darker at that point than Italians or Middle Eastern peoples, right? So I feel like you have a real heavy kind of central, uh, like dark skin, light on the really fair and very, and or pretty rarely, very few on the really fair and very few uh, few on the really dark side of those spectrums. Um, I do, I have read ancient literature that like, seems to prefer skin color in certain ways. Um, like, I'll just give you one example. I mean, it's in the Song of Solomon. There's a moment when uh, the, the, the princess or the, you know, who is about to be married, she says, I am dark, but I am lovely. The implication seemingly being that we prefer fairer or lighter skin in a sense, but I'm still lovely in spite of my darkness or something along those lines. So I do... It does seem, you know, and I know when I've read some, at least later literature, uh, medieval literature, I've read some stuff that seems to draw lines on kind of a race distinction. Like I think of, uh, uh, oh, what is the name of Song of Roland, which really highlights the invading Moors as, uh, you know, by the darkness of their skin and making that kind of a, now this is of course much later we're talking high middle ages or not, not quite high middle ages at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I mean, I do find some reference to the, to skin color, but I think a lot of it is, is that skin color is much, much less diverse in the Roman world than it would be today when we have such a worldwide picture. Um, and it seems that, uh, like when you think of ethnic centri- ethnocentrism in the empire, it seems to be way more a us against everyone else kind of thing. Like we're Jews, everyone else is a Gentile. We're Greek, right. everyone else is a barbarian. So they, you have those breakdowns, but slavery itself is a is a weird one because they don't associate slavery with an ethnicity at all or with a color at all. And yet you have certainly that line of thinking that Aristotle displayed that makes a true distinction between slaves and non-slaves as like a metaphysical distinction that slaves are subhuman and free men are not sub. I mean, they are human, you know? And so it's such a a weird, a a weird way of looking at it because I don't know how they make the distinction because you wouldn't be able to identify a slave 
just by well by any natural um, you know quality, I guess. So it, it, it is it is weird. I think that they still ascribe the same kind of subhuman sense that that European and American slaveholders did in the seventeenth, uh, eighteenth, and nineteenth centuries, but they just had a much vaguer sense of how they defined that. Uh, this is getting really in depth, but in my dissertation, uh, I do look at some of the um, like how people like St. Augustine would have been educated. And so we have some of these manuals for um, uh, what are like basically, um, I don't know, they'd be like introduction to rhetoric and introduction to grammar. Um, and in one of them, the, in the introduction, which had previously never been translated, um, the Diomedes is this guy, Diomedes the grammarian, and he says – there are set, there uh, the the those that are educated and those who learn to speak following this manual they will be as superior to the lower class of humans as humans are to cattle. Um, so he literally makes a I mean I don't know, I don't know if I would call it an ontological distinction, but he says there are. Uh, there's a separate category. Um, there are humans who are educated, and then there are humans who speak uh, bad grammar. Um, and and they are not human in the same way that we are human. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, it's the most bizarre thing. I was like, wow. I did, I'd never thought of education as that uh, significant. Yeah, that, that and that's what I was going to say about something Tom just said was, um, I think in general, since the thing that made you essentially human was your rational soul um you there wasn't anything like skin color of course but i i think aristotle thought basically you could spot a dumb person <laughs> i mean to put it real colloquially like he he essentially thought that those who who weren't um in some way i don't i don't really i'm not a scholar enough to know in what ways he thought this occurred um but like if they didn't basically have a fully rational nature that was like nurtured in the right way that those were the natural slaves well i think this is so hard for us to wrap our heads around because we are so immersed in an egalitarian society um we just from it's not just from the beginning of our like since we've been born but since our parents were born and pretty much our grandparents and even our great-grandparents we were all raised believing that there is no fundamental difference between humans and terms of dignity, value, or worth. But if you, I mean, we're talking right now about the slave, non-slave, or slave-free man distinction and the way that they thought of it. But you got to remember that throughout Roman history, as well as medieval history, and frankly, all of Western history until, you know, pretty much the 19th century or 20th century, um, there was a not just a slave-free man distinction, but a caste system in which all the distinctions were considered natural, permanent, and objectively true. They were ontological class distinctions, right? The, the, the old Romans of the old Republic, you had the patricians and the plebeians, and there was no upward or downward mobility in that system. You were born a patrician and you would remain a patrician. And again, this is something so confusing to me because there's no outward marking of a patrician. And honestly, I don't even think intelligence was necessarily part of it. I mean, patricians would certainly be better educated than plebeians. Um, 
but there was considered this like this barrier that you couldn't pass through for much of Roman history. Of course, that did change when Rome did, in fact, kind of go through their own kind of social revolution, and there was kind of a more egalitarian sense that crept in. Um, and then, of course, you have a caste system throughout the Middle Ages where you have lords and serfs and and there is a real distinction between the nobility and the common, you know. And, and so I think this whole system is something that doesn't make a lot of sense uh, to to anybody who's born or anybody who's been raised in egalitarian society. Um, and, you know, I think it confuses us largely. And maybe this is why I made my comments earlier. It confuses us because we're so used to talking about this distinction based on race because that's such a big part of American history, because at least since this, I mean, at least, well, I was about to say since the civil war, but obviously even before the civil war, I mean, that's why, you know, the, the war was fought. Um, but, you know, throughout American history, you've had this very, this very key thing that whereas the founding fathers could abolish the caste system largely, they didn't abolish it in one key place. And that was based on race. And so consequently, the caste system that Americans have had to wrestle with and to try to overthrow and to try to to try to, to replace and fix was based on a, a caste system that, or it was a caste system based on race as opposed to a caste system based on many other things. And so maybe that's why it's so hard for me to wrap my head around some of those earlier those earlier systems. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there is also the practice of physiognomy, which plays some role um, in this where, you know, the philosophers did think or like like there is this sort of Greek idea that you could judge a person's soul by what they look like on the outside. So if they're you know, if they have like really gnarly characteristics um, that that might have meant that something was wrong with their soul. Um, and so <laughs> there was I mean, I, you know, I don't know how widespread this is, but it is a part of, let's say, broader Greek culture um, that that physiognomy was some kind of. Um, teller, um, sort sort of like um, you know, if if you were born with some kind of deformity, um, it was sort of a you know, it reflected the sort of the um, uh, the distortion of your soul, maybe in a previous life, right? I mean, Plato thinks that there's some kind of reincarnation, um, but uh, which is also why I think that. Well, anyway, I have a larger argument why I think the Greco-Roman world is a lot closer to Hindu culture than we realize. But um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, the the other thing, the other thing that like is interesting to me in this whole conversation, and I'm not exactly sure how to put this uh, succinctly, but it, it it reminds me of the argument for the um, you know the sort of the problem of evil. So usually, when Western like contemporary Westerners, like one of the greatest questions that people have when they come into a philosophy or theology class is they say, um, you know, why would a good God allow evil and suffering? And one of the things that I'm reminded of when I read the ancients is their starting point is exactly the opposite. Um, that is, why would there be anything good because there's so much evil? Um, <laughs> and so the first question that you should ask isn't why is there evil, but why is there good? Um, and so it, it seems to me that that's still the world in which um, uh, uh, 
that Augustine and Paul and a lot of these early Christians, their their mindset is still things are so awful and so hard. Um, and and what we have in Christianity is the breaking in that there could be something good um, and that there could be something beautiful and that there could be something more. And so they haven't so um, sort of immerse themselves in this idea of the kingdom of God at hand that they think, well, we should just do all of this now and make this a perfect world now. Um, they think, hey, how do I go to my neighbor and show that there's something good in the world? Um, and how do I look at this relationship between a slave and an owner and say, because there's something good in the world, because there is a good God, um, you need to act differently right now between the two of you. Um, and you know, we'll get to other stuff later. Cause as Tom pointed out, we're not even sure how long we're going to be here. Um, but, but th to me, that is, that is a radically different starting point than ours. Um, and so that also makes it difficult to even, to like even conceive of why they wouldn't want to sort of undo what we would call the whole system or institution. You know, and you mentioning that it makes me think about just how different first century well, I mean, not just first century, the, the ancient world, the pre-Christian world even saw issues of right and wrong, good and bad, justice and injustice. And I just think about the opening of the Republic when the whole conversation for that is Plato's Republic gets started when Socrates asks the question of what is justice, right? And Thrasymachus comes in and says, well, it's the advantage of the stronger. Uh, his point being that always the right thing to happen is for the just person or group to uh, basically look out for their interests and attain their success. And obviously that wasn't a universal um, belief amongst the ancients because Socrates, or Plato, I should say, spends the whole work arguing against that particular vision. But I mention it because it was at least a view of it and one that Plato found him, that must have been prevalent enough that Plato felt he had to defend his own against it, right? And so, I mean, could you even imagine somebody really trying to honestly propose such a position today that that justice is just for the, the stronger to manipulate and control the weak? I couldn't even imagine somebody making that argument. When there is disagreements on justice, it seems to me nowadays, it's just it's rooted in the fact that people are disagreeing about what is happening to the weaker and whether or not the weaker are suffering in certain ways. It's not the argument that the weaker should suffer, you know? Um, so I yeah. wonder how much that plays into just that overall perception as well of the problem of evil and the problem, you know, and kind of the way that Greeks and Romans looked at it. Yeah, there's a there's a flip in the sense that today's writers and thinkers on these issues are completely concerned about the well-being of the least well-off, whereas that was obviously just the exact opposite. But that does show, again, how, how far Christianity was ahead of its time, since, of course, Christianity was known then as sort of the religion of the least well-off, um, that being it was like the women and poor people. It was its stereotype uh, in in the first couple centuries. So, it it's yeah, and of course, obviously, the the message of Christ Himself um, was often 
one that appealed to the least well-off because it said you will not always be the least well-off. And so it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to see Christianity as, as this sort of, um, I don't know. It's something familiar kind of to look back on in, in a world that was completely the opposite. So in that sense, when we see them not completely say everything we think or want them to say, you're almost not surprised because of basically what you've pointed out. They just lived in literally a, a backwards world. I mean, and, and the, the thing you just mentioned, Tom, is just so demonstrative of that. Um, I'm going to have to go here pretty quick, but is there anything else you guys want to bring up before we close up shop here? No, just to let, make sure everybody, uh, if you read the sermon, you'll find that, that Nissa addresses a lot more than just slavery. Yeah. Slavery is just the first component of this, but we wanted to, you know, hone in and focus on that. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's good. He deals with usury. Um, so <laughs> we yeah. that could be a whole other podcast. It's <laughs> <laughs> not a problem in our society, is it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I would have to own up to the fact that, uh, you know, my dad's a banker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he actually has some good quotes um, on it, too, that I, that I highlighted. They were, they were worth highlighting. Thanks for listening to A History of Christian Theology. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. Um, and um, we just love hearing from you all and what, what you uh, appreciate or, or don't, or if you have any other suggestions on how we can improve. We always also appreciate hearing those. So thanks for listening. <laughs>